Thank you, our loyal blog readers, for joining us for another Friday podcast session called the Class Action Weekly Wire. My name is Jerry Matman, a partner at Dwayne Morris, and I'm joined today by my partners, Jennifer Riley and Alex Karasik. Thanks so much for being here today. Great to be here, Jerry. Thanks for having me, Jerry. Today we wanted to discuss uh, significant developments and rulings in a particular class action space involving the Class Action Fairness Act of 2005, known as CAFA. Alex, what would be uh, an elevator speech as to what CAFA is all about in terms of what corporate counsel should know? CAFA is a staple of class action litigation. Uh, this statute was signed into law in February of 2005 by President George W. Bush. Essentially what CAFA is is a mechanism uh, for defendants to remove a lawsuit from state court to federal court. Uh, it's, it involves uh, forum selection strategy, so defendants would use this statute to try to get out of maybe a, a hostile state court and get into a federal jurisdiction. Yeah, to add a couple of things to that, uh, CAFA does a few additional things as well. It regulates the selection of class counsel, uh, it toughens pleading standards, it tightens control over the range of attorney fee awards that can be awarded in class action settlements, uh, it facilitates the appeal of class certification orders, and it reduces the ability of plaintiff's counsel to dictate the choice of forum in the class action and mass action context seems to me CAF is a very important statute. In your experience, what impact does it have on the day-to-day defense of a class action? Well, I would say it has really played a major role in the defense of bet the company class actions. So um, prior to and, and even since the implementation of CAFA, plaintiffs have really enjoyed great success in certifying classes in state courts. So it's been important for the defendant to be able to remove those bet the company cases to federal court. And prior to the implementation of CAFA, a defendant had to rely on traditional diversity jurisdiction, meaning that removal was, was tough in that the defendant had to show at least $75,000 in controversy uh, for each of the named plaintiffs, as well as complete diversity of citizenship among all the plaintiffs as to all of the defendants. So now with CAFA, um, those standards are, are much easier to meet. Um, CAFA requires um, an aggregate amount of co- in controversy and also only minimal diversity. So it's a great tool for the defendants um, who are facing these bet the company cases. Alex, does it apply across the board to all types of class actions, or are there particular types of class actions where CAFA is more important? Well, we typically see certain types of class or collective actions filed directly in federal court, such as the FLSA claims, Title VII claims, ERISA claims. So what plaintiff's lawyers often do is they find novel wage and hour state law claims or certain state law discrimination claims, and they specifically bring suit under those types of causes of action in state court to try to get around federal jurisdiction. So defendants have to be ready for that strategy, and they typically have to be prepared to remove under CAFA if state wage and hour claims are brought. Certain circuits, such as the Second Circuit, uh, tends to be a big one, and particularly the Ninth Circuit is the most common circuit where we see CAFA class actions, uh, CAFA rulings in the class action space being uh, relevant because California has so many novel state law claims available uh, at the arsenal of plaintiff's lawyers there. Our Dwayne Morris class action review analyzed hundreds of opinions. Were there any bellwether 
uh, rulings over the past year in the CAFA space? Interesting, because every year, not every jurisdiction has a CAFA ruling. In fact, many years, there's you know certain circuits that don't have one. This past year, all 12 circuits had one, so that shows that there's a lot, uh, lot of CAFA uh, the strategies being deployed by defendants throughout the country. In 2022, the Third Circuit touched on this issue of removal in the McLaren versus UPS store case. The CAFA normally requires defendants to file a notice of removal within 30 days of receipt uh, of the limited pleading setting forth the claim for relief. Um, the Third Circuit held that the 30-day removal clock is triggered based only on what a defendant can ascertain from the four corners of the pleading, uh, or in other words, that the paper the defendant receives, and that the 1446B does not apply or does not impose a duty uh, to search records to, uh, for companies on possible removal grounds. Jen, um, it's often said that the Second Circuit is the Supreme Court of securities fraud class actions. I've heard it said that the Ninth Circuit is like the Supreme Court of uh, CAFA rulings. I know a large majority of your class action work is in California. By way of your thinking, what would be the most significant Ninth Circuit CAFA rulings from the past year? That's a great question. So there was a, a very interesting ruling out of the Ninth Circuit this past year. It was called Uruguay versus Roadrunner. Um, that's a case where the defendant removed from state court to federal court and involved a wage and hour class action. Um, even though the defendant presented substantial evidence that the amount in controversy was met, the district court remanded the case. Um, on appeal, though, the Ninth Circuit reversed um, and found the district court's order remanding the case um, really discounted the substantial evidence that the defendant had presented um, and sought to really impose what the court called an unrealistic burden um, on a defendant that really contravenes the text of CAFA. So that was an important ruling for the defense. We saw in the past year an explosion of privacy class action litigation. Alex, in that particular space, how has CAFA played out? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, biometric privacy class actions in Illinois and beyond. It's becoming kind of the flavor of the year in this space. Uh, there was an interesting ruling in the Northern District of Illinois in uh, Pichot versus Maui Jim Inc., which was a class action involving uh, a BIPA claim, claiming that the defendants unlock off unlawfully collected, captured, and stored the biometric identifiers of the uh, aggrieved uh, class and particularly plaintiff's facial geometry uh, when he was using a virtual try-on software uh, for, to buy sunglasses online. Following removal, the plaintiff removed, uh, to move to remand under an exception to CAFA that obligates the court to decline to exercise jurisdiction over local controversies. So the court held that because the plaintiff offered no evidence beyond his own citizenship, the, court, uh, the plaintiff could not meet his burden to show that there's two-thirds of the putative class are citizens of Illinois. However, the court exercises discretion to order jurisdictional discovery, noting the parties do not need to determine the citizenship of every class member uh, individually to present evidence on this question. So I think we're going to see a lot of cases where um, and you're involving biometric identifiers and this type of software that's used by people uh, both in and out of the jurisdiction to see if uh, defendants are going to try to remove these to federal court to get a more even playing field, but plaintiffs will fight aggressively to keep these types of biometric cases in the state courts, such as, you know, Cook County in Illinois, where um, it's become kind of the bread and butter jurisdiction for the plaintiff's bar. To, uh, to that end, maybe looking in your crystal ball, Jen, um, what would you uh, counsel uh, 
employers and companies to be on the lookout for in terms of CAFA developments in 2023? Well, I think that this is going to be a continued source of litigation in 2023. Given the importance of the forum to class certification issues, I think defendants are going to continue to remove these cases um, where they can, and I think plaintiffs are going to try to remand them. Um, and going to be more aggressive and more creative in terms of their remand strategies. As Alex mentioned, the local controversy exception is one of those things that I expect plaintiffs are going to continue to rely upon, um, and they're going to get more creative in terms of how are they going to meet their burden, um, how are they going to take discovery from the defendants in a way that shows that local controversy is met. Well, thank you both for joining our podcast today, and loyal blog readers, you can join us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and on our uh, website in terms of raising issues or sending direct messages to our uh, legal analysts. So have a great day and thanks so much.